and good day. Welcome to Monday. It's Monday here. It's Fired Up Radio, where we talk about politics. You're on WJMSRadio.com. I'm Steve. I'm your host. We're about to dive into all of the madness going on in the political world here in the United States. And, you know, as we have had to do over the last few weeks, uh, let's get the numbers out of the way. So keeping track on the COVID-19 coronavirus, uh, as of Sunday, well, we're up to 1.47 million cases here in the United States, and uh, over 89,000 people have died from the disease. And new reports coming out are saying that we could see 100,000 deaths by the 1st of June. And, you know, that, that's a staggering number. Uh, let's put it into some perspective here. Uh, a lot of people are comparing, you know, COVID-19, coronavirus, uh, as nothing more than just a version of the flu. Well, in this country, year over year, uh, influenza, also known as the flu, uh, comes and goes, you know, once or twice a year, and typically, uh, you know, leads to somewhere between about 30 and 60,000 people a year dying from the disease. Now, I don't say that lightly. Uh, one death from any disease is too many, but I do say it to put in perspective here that you know each year, every 12 months with the flu, uh, we can look to see somewhere between 30 and 60,000 people die from it. Uh, in three months, in three short months, COVID-19 has cost us nearly 100,000 precious lives. And, you know, the, the real sad part about this is that, you know, as, as we've heard through news media and discussions, you know, everywhere, uh, because the United States responded to this late and because of the, you know, decisions made by leadership to treat this illness lightly and not take it seriously, uh, there is a potential that many people died who need not have died. Had we had moved our resources and preparations, you know, back in January, uh, we could have, you know, seen the curve begin to level out by now. We could have seen a lot fewer people get sick from the illness and a lot fewer people uh, would have had to die. Um, you know, and the other thing that the coronavirus has done, it has opened up uh, the view on a lot of inadequacies in this country, in, you know, our, our policy and our political response to pandemics, um, you know, that, that we didn't see before this illness uh, struck us, you know, and, and I speak to, you know, the damage that it has cost in human life. And, you know, as I've already mentioned, we are fast approaching having more than 100,000 people die from this disease just here in this country. And we are, you know, 25% of the world cases of this disease. We are by far the epicenter of this, this pandemic in the world. Um, you know, and again, you know, it, it, it needn't have been this way. If we look at how other countries have responded, if we look at the way Italy responded and the way Germany has responded, uh, the way China has responded, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about that in a second, and the way you know, South Korea has responded, all of those countries I've mentioned 
have a lot lower infection rate and a lot lower per capita death rate now because they addressed this pandemic early. They didn't take it lightly. They didn't take it, you know, as something that would, as, as we were told, um, you know, by the president would disappear with the spring, you know, warm weather would make it go away. No, it's here. It's going to be here. And, you know, as a result of this, you know, we have a very high human cost in terms of this, this pandemic and a very high economic cost. Now, this has led to some very heated and divisive political discussions about what our role needs to be in the face of this pandemic. What's more important? Is it more important to open up our economy? Is it more important to slow the spending of money to combat this disease? Or should we just do you know, whatever needs to be done to get us back to, quote, normal, close quote, as quickly as possible? We're going to talk a little bit about that in the first half of this show because I do want to uh, weigh in on what I think the situation is and what our response as citizens of this country needs to be. And again, this is in my opinion, uh, what this, our response needs to be in the face of this pandemic. So, as I've said, COVID-19 coronavirus has more than nearly doubled the number of people who die from a a coronavirus family illness uh, as COVID-19 is, you know, a cousin to influenza, as well as SARS and MRSA and and the others that have come down. and you know we're seeing what can only be called a a catch-up battle for the United States to try and find mechanisms to corral this virus. Um, I, you know there there's talk about you know it will go away. Well, the flu has not gone away, and we have fought it every year for decades. You know for thirty years, forty years. You know. And, and so forth, there has always been a flu outbreak just about every you know, fall into winter uh, and just about every um, uh, spring, we see an outbreak of the flu somewhere in this country and there are people sick and so forth. Well, one of the things that has held down the, the infection rate and the death rate in the flu is that the vast overwhelming majority of people in this country have had the flu. You know, we, uh, we, you know, face the flu each year. Many of us, if not most of us, catch some form of the flu at least once a year, whether it's mild or severe, whether it's treat at home and, and stay in home, stay at home and stay in bed for a few days, you know, chicken soup, uh, tea with honey and lemon and, and all of those home cures or it's being treated in a hospital for those who are at, at risk for more serious infections. What we have not seen is the, the spread and the r- rapid uh, infection rate of this type of coronavirus. Uh, one of the things to keep in mind is number one, as I've said, we have established what is called herd immunity to influenza, to the flu. Most of the people in this country 
uh, of adult age have had the flu at some point or another. And once you have it, and once you have recovered from it, your body builds antibodies to defend against you know, that strain of the flu. When a new strain of flu comes out, which it does every, every year or every couple of years, a new version of the flu uh, shows up, and we're able to extrapolate our medical lessons and have vaccines out there that can help us combat it. And you know these vaccines are widely distributed. You can go to your CVS, your Walgreens, your doctor, you know, walk-in clinics, you know, any you know medical facility uh, anywhere, and get a flu shot. And what that does is it introduces a version, a benign version of the flu into your body so that your body can react to it, build up the antibodies necessary to defend against it. Well, we don't have that arsenal for the coronavirus yet. It's under development, yes. Uh, is it around the corner? Will we have it this summer? No. And, and you know, a lot of politicians are saying how, you know, we're going to beat this, we're going to have a vaccine, you know, in months, in, you know, weeks or whatever. That's not true. That is factually not true. The best experts in our science and medical fields tell us that a working vaccine uh, developed and tested and proven and created in quantities sufficient to distribute to the large portion of the American population is at least 12 to 18 months away. And as I've said before in prior shows, you have to understand that normal cycle from development to market for a vaccine or a treatment for an illness is anywhere from two to four years. So the fact that they are cutting that time in half represents the urgency that the medical and scientific community feels about this. But the reality is that in order to make sure that a vaccine that is effective, that can be widely distributed, and most importantly is safe, is you know months and months and months away. We're not going to get this, you know, in time for Labor Day. We're not going to possibly even get this in time for Thanksgiving. You know, and you know the the experts are saying that the current version or versions, because there have been a couple, seems to be uh, variants on the COVID nineteen. Uh, you know, is not going to be a one and done thing. We're not going to go through this once. And then, you know, it's over. That was just something to look back on in our memory books and say, wow, that sucked. You know, that was a rough time. No, this is, you know, like the flu. It is something that's going to resurface year over year over year. And, you know, I'm not saying that to be a doom and gloom person. I am a practical realist. I am, you know, someone who uh, digs in to find out the truth and the science and the material basis for things and that's what all the evidence points to that this is something that is going to occur and recur you know year over year so our new normal is going to be that you know instead of just getting a flu vaccine we will either be getting you know a vaccine that is a hybrid to treat both the flu and COVID, or we will need a vaccine for the flu and a vaccine for COVID. You know, our normal has been changed going forward pretty much forevermore. And we need to understand that, integrate it into how we operate, and move forward from there. 
So, you know, it, it, is, it is something that has fundamentally changed not just our country, but has changed the world. It is something we need to be focused on and um, attendant to. And, you know, we cannot stick our heads in the sand or, you know, fact spin or, or create narratives that fit any other uh, objective other than keeping our people safe. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of political battle going on that is being driven by the coronavirus. And uh, we're going to dig into that. You know, I'll, I'll lead off with something that uh, the president's son, Eric Trump, said the other day. And it, it kind of carries the narrative that his father gave us back in January. Um, but he was quoted as saying, you know, after November 3rd, the coronavirus will simply disappear. Uh, it will, you know, just not be a problem anymore. And the hype and hyperbola and panic that's being spread is a Democratic Party construct uh, aimed at, you know, in, uh, influencing the outcome of the election in November. Now, <laughs> I don't know about you, but I, I find that statement not only to be um, facetious on its face, but I just find it to be very reckless and cavalier and really kind of illustrate where the battle lines are being drawn over this illness. You know, Republicans are hell-bent on getting the economy back open and getting money flowing in the, in, in the workplace and, you know, and, and companies making money again because that's where their base is. That's what, you know, that's the butter that's on their bread. You know, Democrats, you know, are, are not innocent in this either. Their agenda, you know, is using this coronavirus as a weapon to assure them of, you know, an election victory in November. And they are going to, you know, pull all the stops out in trying to hang the American response to this illness around the incumbent president's neck like an anchor and you know tie him to it just as the incumbent is going to be doing everything he can to you know distance disavow distract divert you know attention away from the performance of the government on the coronavirus uh, and talk about more political strategies and actions that would benefit him going going forward uh, the bottom line is that we're going to see somewhere north of 130 to 160,000 people die this year from coronavirus COVID-19. You know, and you know, it, it is it's clear as we, we get into the, the politics of this, it is clear that you know this Republican strategy to uh, to to use the coronavirus as a weapon in, in their political battle with their Democratic opponents um, is starting to heat up and become fast and furious and active and negative and nasty and all of those things. Um, you know, a, a recent action by the Republican National Committee um, who is literally scrambling to find, you know, that, that silver bullet strategy that allows them to weaponize the coronavirus to their political advantage, um, they looked at 20 different um, 
strategies, you know, to to attack the Democrats uh, revolving around the coronavirus and the response and all of that. And, you know, it didn't work. None of those strategies, none of those ads, none of those marketing attempts uh, gained any traction of, of notice and showed any sign of being an effective strategy for the Republicans to maintain their control of you know, the White House and the Senate in the November elections. As polls are starting to show, and I caveat, remember we've talked about polls and you know, what we need to do and the kind of diligence we need to do with those, the polls are showing that in most cases there is a, a solid, uh, in some cases small, but significant Democratic lead uh, in polling in terms of, of winning not only the, the White House, but you know, converting the Senate to Democratic control and holding on to the House. And also in the down-ballot races, we see a lot more Democratic enthusiasm in efforts to not only get out the vote, but make sure those votes get in and get counted. So there is a huge political battle brewing that COVID-19 is going to be at least part of the center of. Now, you know, the normal political, you know, strategies, negative ads, attack, and, you know, policy shortcomings, and what this candidate has succeeded at doing because the other one failed at doing, and, and the, the he said, she said, and he said, he said kind of battles going on, that's still going to be there. But what we are going to see, and you can mark my words on this, is that everything is going to orbit around the sun of coronavirus. Everything is going to circle that star as the, the pivot point that shows, you know, from depending on which side you're, you're looking at it, that shows, you know, the strength of one party on the, versus the weakness of another party. And that's well and good. We need to have those kinds of comparisons. You know, elections are not supposed to be simply a popularity contest. They are supposed to be a judgment call, a decision on you know, how an incumbent has performed. If that incumbent is not doing the job that they were sent into their elected office to do, then it is the function of the voter to exercise that vote and institute a change in leadership. And if that's what the voters decide to do, based on the facts, based on what has transpired, then that's the will of the people. That's the way this country is supposed to work. That's how it was intended by the founders, that you know, the, the bottom line at the end of the day, government should fear the people, not the other way around. We should not be afraid of what our government does. We should make sure that the government fears and respects our wishes in how things get done in this country. And, you know, for the most part, over the last few decades, that has been less and less and less of a factor. You know, this election coming up has become an election of uh, not as much ideology as it is personality. Uh, it, has, it has opened up wounds of ageism, sexism, racism, you know, classism, all of these things have now come forward to play a major role in how America 
chooses its leadership going forward. And that's not the way it's supposed to work. We need to have, you know, the election should be, we need to have it as a fair and objective, I can't believe I just said that, a fair and objective assessment of how our political leadership is performing. And as I said, I can't believe I just said it, given that we have seen nothing but, you know, negative ads and attack ads and, and half-truths and flat-out lies uh, and spin and, you know, fake news and, and all of that and attacks uh, from both sides. You know, the, the, the incumbent party is, you know, battling for all it's worth using all of the, the clubs in the golf bag on this. But let's be fair. The Democrats are also playing the game. So, you know, as, as we as we're going to take our break here um, and, you know, think about that. Think back over the, the past year and look at the political games that have been played. When we come back on the other side of the break, I'm going to dive a little bit more into that. Uh, right now, we've got a uh, public service message coming up. Uh, from VoteRider.org and your friends here at WJMS.com. And we'll also throw a musical break in as well. So stay tuned. You're listening to Fired Up. This is Steve. You're right here on WJMSRadio.com. We'll be right back after this short break. I was going to get my vote ID card because they said you had to have it in order to be able to vote. When I got there, I approached the gentleman at the counter and told him what I wanted. I showed him my veteran's card. He said that was no good. He said you had to have a state-issued ID card in order to be able to vote. Seniors, women, people of color, young adults, those with low incomes, people with disabilities, Every citizen needs to review your documentation now to make sure you can vote in November. Please check with your local county election board to make sure the name on your photo ID closely matches the name you used when you registered to vote. Please contact us at 866-OUR-VOTE or 866-687-8683.
And we're back. We're back after our break right here on Fired Up on WJMSRadio.com. This is Steve. I'm your host each week. I uh, want to give a shout out to the musical uh, selection we played. That's a remake of the original classic, uh, We Are the World, uh, that was redone uh, recently in light of the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, a lot more modern stars in there, a lot different music, uh, a tune I really liked. Um, but let's get right back into where we left off. So we were talking about the political battles that are, are forming around the coronavirus and its impact on the upcoming election. And, you know, there is no shortage of games being played. Uh, the administration uh, and particularly the uh, re-election efforts of the president are really starting to focus more and more, and you will see this going forward if you pay attention to it, that their, pol- their policy, their plan of distraction, distortion, and diversion of the attention of the public from the issues of you know, the, the pandemic spreading across the country and other things as well uh, have really, really been driving a lot of the action you've seen coming out of Washington um, Republicans, you know, at, at the urging of the president, they're pushing a much more aggressive uh, in investigation into the roots of the 2016 Russian interference. Uh, we are coming back around the circle to that. Uh, you've heard a lot of talk lately about this thing called Obamagate, uh, where it, it just continues the strategy exercised by this president uh, blaming as much of the current situation on the former administration as possible, even if it is less than factually accurate. You know, and you know, there have been numerous times in public statements where President Trump has, has blamed uh, his predecessor for you know, either not giving him you know, enough equipment in the National Reserves, uh, to combat the pandemic or not giving him a, a plan or not you know, laying out any kind of strategy, which has been documented to be factually not true. The Obama administration received at its transition from the prior Republican administration of George W. Bush, they were given a pandemic playbook, which they incorporated into their policy making and, you know, use that to deal with Ebola and, you know, MRSA and SARS uh, going through the years that President Obama was in office. And they handed over a similar playbook, uh, something to the tune, if I remember reading correctly, of about 70 pages uh, of what to do and strategies and approaches and procedures that uh, were set up in place by the pandemic response council that had been established and you know they had plans at hand well over the course of you know the three years that you know trump's been in office uh number one he dismantled that pandemic response team and eliminated that uh and has taken other steps that are 180 degrees opposite to what an administration should take in the face of the possibility of a pandemic striking uh, American shores. 
um, you know, he has, he being, you know, President Trump, has, you know, initiated uh, this, this vendetta campaign against those who have, you know, spoken against the policies of this administration with respect to the coronavirus. Um, he uh, fired State Department Inspector General Steve Linick uh, for his creating a whistleblower report on the deficiencies that were found in the Trump administration, even though the, the plan book and, and strategies had been handed to them at the transition of government between the Obama administration and the Trump administration. Um, he was investigating not only that, but he was investigating the current Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, uh, for misusing staff. So his whistleblower report was on the misuse of staff by Pompeo, and for that, the, the uh, Trump administration uh, basically fired him. Another inspector general who had blown the whistle on you know, the failing of the Trump administration to respond to the coronavirus pandemic also resulted in his being fired as well. So, you know, there, there is definitely a continuation of what we saw through the impeachment process of, you know, obstructing, diverting, distracting uh, attention and, and resources and people who were trying to speak the truth to the current administration, and apparently they didn't want to hear it. So, you know, we've got that going on. Uh, another diversion, distraction, is the Attorney General, uh, Attorney General Barr, has uh, directed or, you know, supported the Department of Justice in dropping the charges that convicted, you know, former General Mike Flynn, who was, at the time of the election and the transition, was for a brief period of time the national security advisor to the incoming president Donald Trump. Uh, he ran afoul of the law due to his working as an unregistered foreign agent for the country of Turkey along with conversations he uh, had uh, with a Russian diplomat uh, regarding sanctions that had been put in place by the Obama administration that the Trump administration was looking to undo once he took office. So, you know, the, the charges were filed, the trial was held, and actually Flynn pleaded guilty to those crimes in writing, in the public record. He admitted to doing the things that he had been accused of. Now, I'm, I'm no lawyer, but it seems to me that if you plead guilty to something, uh, that should pretty much be a done deal. You know, I, I'm not aware and, and I don't know if there's precedent for charges to be dropped by the prosecution after a verdict has been rendered. So, you know, we'll, we'll see how that plays out. Uh, but that's another ongoing story. Um, you know, it, it should be noted, and a lot of people had thought that what would transpire in the Flynn case was that President Trump would ultimately pardon him. But, you know, the, the political backfire from President Trump pardoning Flynn uh, after such a public review of what had happened in that, uh, that that was a bridge too far for even the Republican Party to go. 
and therefore the way that it looks like that they have found to achieve the same end is to have the DOJ, which through you know President Trump's hand-picked Attorney General uh, Bill Barr, uh, has has um, turned into his own personal Justice Department. They have decided that they are going to drop the charges altogether and you know not pursue any additional charges against Mike Flynn. So, you know, there are are things that we the people, you know, we need to be seeing these things. We need to be uh, gathering all of the facts. And, you know, I, I say this all the time, but, you know, whether you get your news sources from conservative media, from liberal media, from progressive media, from independent media, from social media, whatever sources that you get information from, you need to make sure that you go back and dig down into the roots of that. Find out what the real story is. Find out the facts. Listen to as many different sides as you can. Now, I get if you're a conservative fan that, you know, listening to so-called liberal media uh, is not something that you may do. But if you want to be informed, if you want to make the wisest possible decision, it's something you need to do. You need to be listening to a cross-section of news sources to find out what each side is saying about the underlying event because, you know, like I say, the truth lies somewhere in the middle. So, you know, if your goal is to be informed, is to make intelligent choices, especially when it comes to, you know, voting, and, and this carries from your local elections all the way up to the federal elections. If you want to make sure that you are making the wisest, most informed, best choice you can, then you need to do your homework. You need to dig in. You need to dig deeper, dig wider. You need to get the information you need to make an informed decision. Now, you know, at the end of the day, you may find out that the actual facts of a situation don't match up with what your favorite news source has been telling you. So, you know, you need to take that into account. However, it's still, it's your choice. But make sure that you are well informed and educated about your choices. Um, so, you know, a as we've said, you know, there's a lot of political games going on. Um, and not all of them are related to the coronavirus. Um, you know, some of them are the, <laughs> quote, standard, close quote, political games that happen in time of, of elections. I mentioned before the um, call by, you know, Trump and leadership in the Senate and, and other uh, in, the, in the administration to investigate the so-called Obamagate uh, scenario of, you know, what went on with the Russia investigation and, and all of that, um, you know, and they're serious about it. They tested 20 different lines of attack against, you know, presumptive Democratic nominee Joe Biden revolving around, you know, his involvement as a member of the Obama administration in this so-called 
uh, uh, strategy, the so-called conspiracy to bring the Russians to blame for interfering in the 2016 election. Side note, every intelligence agency has confirmed that this happened and those facts have been reported across all spectrum of the media. So, you know, the fact that they are exercising, you know, some type of revisionist history is something that we need to take account of. Um, so, you know, this is all coming about as a result of the political realities that are starting to appear that say that a Republican uh, victory across the board in November is not a slam dunk. Uh, to, to further talk about that point, there's an article in Salon uh, that came out over the weekend and this was a, an op-ed that was written by Robert Reich, who is a uh, sitting professor uh, of economics and was also the uh, Secretary of Labor under former President Bill Clinton. Um, he has in, emerged as a kind of a senior spokesperson on things uh, labor-related and economics-related and he wrote an op-ed where he outlined, uh, you know, four, as he called, lethal strategies that, you know, Donald Trump is using in his effort to guarantee his re-election. Um, you know, so we'll take a, a quick run through that. So in this article, and if you go to Salon uh, online site and um, search for Robert Reich, you will find this article there and you can read it for yourself and in fact I encourage it. Uh, I'll even post a link to it in my Twitter feed for the show. Um, you know his first step uh, was is that the Republicans want to remove income support so that people have no choice but to return to work. Uh, right now and you know true disclosure 100% uh, transparency uh, I am among those people who are part of the 38 million Americans who have lost their jobs or have seen their jobs drastically reduced or furloughed due to the impacts of the COVID-19 coronavirus. Um, but the Labor Department under President Trump uh, has decided that furloughed employees must accept, without exception, an employer's offer to return to work uh, and therefore forfeit unemployment benefits regardless of the risk of returning to work before it's safe. Now, remember, we are now going through a period of time where multiple states are looking at reopening their state after you know, moving away from an all-inclusive shutdown due to the virus. Uh, some states uh, are actually beginning to open up segments of their uh, state, uh, including such things as bars and restaurants, uh, personal care, hair, haircutting, massage, you know, nail care, uh, beaches, parks, golf clubs, other places where people congregate in large numbers and close proximity, you know, in, in resistance to what the scientific and health community say is critical for us to maintain a control level over this virus and to minimize as best we can the spread of this virus among the population. 
So, you know, this step of forcing people to choose between contracting a potentially deadly virus or losing their livelihood uh, is in, in Robert Reich's uh, article, he calls it inhumane. You know, uh, another step he talked about is, you know, hiding the facts. And his claim is that no one knows how many Americans are truly infected because the Trump administration continues to drag its heels on testing. So, you know, what that means is one of the ways we determine how and where we need to battle this disease most aggressively is by testing. In testing, we establish not only the concentrations of the disease in a given area, but we also establish the boundaries as to, you know, where areas are less likely to be impacted greatly. Uh, and the only way we accomplish that is by widespread and accessible uh, use of testing and tracing. Um, you know, and you know, that data is not apparently, according to Reich, coming out from the federal government in you know, accurate or sufficient numbers. His third step that he mentioned is to push a false narrative about freedom and liberation. And you know, we heard this very clearly uh, about a month ago where Donald Trump, through statements and through tweets, was encouraging people to liberate their states, like Michigan and Virginia and, and others, um, and you know, basically ignore the, the rules that have been put in place about PPE and about distancing socially and all of that. And you know, that has fired a lot of uh, protest and you know, flouting of the rules, you know, up to and including a, a gathering of armed citizens around the Michigan State House, um, you know, shouting protest uh, at the governor, um, Governor Whitmer, uh, to lock her up, put that in quotes. Um, and, you know, in addition to that, the Attorney General, Bill Barr, has directed the Justice Department to take legal action against any state or local authorities imposing lockdown measures that could, quote, be violating the constitutional rights and civil liberties of individual citizens. Basically saying that, you know, the federal government will sue the states or hold up funding or other means that they have at their disposal to uh, encourage or coerce state participation in what they want to see through leveraging federal dollars. In uh, related to that, his fourth step that he talks about is an action by the Trump administration to shield businesses against lawsuits for spreading the infection. So what they're talking about there is, pro is uh, providing a liability shield so that if, say for example, your job calls you back uh, and as a result of you returning to work, remember I said at the top that they are looking to have it so that you can't refuse that, uh, you actually uh, contract coronavirus and you know, suffer the, the ill effects of it up to and including death, uh, and that there would be no legal liability. That is, you or your estate or your family could not then sue that company for bringing you back into a situation that it knew was not safe. Uh, and, you know, he's looking at, you know, using the powers of the federal government to enforce that. 
Uh, we've seen it happen in you know Trump declaring that meat workers, workers that work in, in meat processing plants, are designated now as essential workers so that they are both able and required to return to work even though there is no uh, solid procedure in place um, to protect them from you know, exposure to COVID-19 at the workplace. You know, and you know, it, it really is, as he points out, as Robert Reich points out in this article and so on, that the biggest obstacle to reopening the economy is the pandemic is the fact that you know it is real it is out there it is infecting people still and you know that alone is reason for us to maintain our quarantine status at least until we have you know more adequate testing uh, a proven method of tracing people who have been been con contracted with the disease and as we move closer and closer to having you know approved and viable treatments you know and if if you're looking for proof of that you need to look no further than Italy than than South Korea South Korea has had an aggressive testing program since uh, you know early January into February they have been actively tracing people you know they have had a very proactive forward looking forward acting uh, antiviral approach in their country and as a result, you know, they are seeing, you know, drastic reductions in the number per capita of people that contract the disease and die from the disease. Same thing in New Zealand. New Zealand has gotten its numbers down into single digits where, you know, the number of people per capita that are getting this disease has really, really dropped uh, almost to, if you want to call it, you know, a normal type of of uh, outbreak such as with the flu. So, you know, the bottom line as we, as we wind up and, and wind down through the show, the bottom line here is, as we always say, you know, take this seriously. Um, this is not a fantasy. Uh, you know, the, the conspiracy theories out there that call COVID a lie. If you have you know, someone in your family uh, who has succumbed to this disease, you know for a fact that it is not a lie. Uh, you know, this is a disease that creates great harm in that it, 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 even when someone, you know, does not survive the disease, the, the pain and hurt goes even beyond that where families cannot do the normal things that one does when you lose a loved one as part of your grieving process. You can't be there, you know, at their last days or in their last hours. You can't be there uh, at a funeral to, to conclude and, and, and handle a necessary part of the grieving process. You can't do the things that you normally do when you lose a loved one. So not only is this, you know, painful and torturous for those that are infected, and believe me, from, from what I've been told and, and you know, what I have, have heard through, you know, my extended family, this is a very debilitating and, and painful and traumatic disease. And, you know, to not be able to be there for your loved one uh, is in of itself a huge, huge uh, inhumane uh, consequence. So, 
you know, the, the bottom line, you know, let's make sure that even as your state may be opening up, you know, look at it, think about it, exercise appropriate caution. You know, we see news stories of, you know, hundreds and hundreds and thousands of people gathered in beaches and parks, not wearing masks, gathered together in, in large numbers, you know, not, not uh, impacting or not exercising social distancing, you know, basically thumbing their nose at the very things that our government is telling us to do in order to keep us safe, um, you know, and, you know, as a result, number of, of cases go up. You know, we look back at Wisconsin where because of voting and, you know, out of the crowds of people that went and physically went to the polling places and voted, you know, at last count, uh, more than 70 of them contracted the disease. And since, you know, one person can spread it to as many as two or three other people, we're looking at, you know, a progression of 140 to 280, et cetera, et cetera, going forward uh, with the spread of this disease and the subsequent death that comes with it. You know, and in, in the last point I'll make is related to that. Uh, again, get together with your county officials and, you know, look at getting an absentee ballot for the November election. Remember, time frames as to when the deadlines for filing for that vary. So check with your, your state government. Uh, you can go to votewriter.org. You can go to vote.org uh, and find out in your state and your locality when the deadlines and requirements are for filing an absentee ballot. Let's make sure we get that done. Because uh, at the end of the day, even though there is a pandemic out there, even though there is a risk, uh, we still need to make sure that we get out and vote in, and make sure our voice is heard uh, to our, our incumbent leaders, uh, if those are who you're supporting, or to the opposition leadership, if that's who you're supporting. You know, get out there, get your vote heard, make sure that you know, your politicians understand what you think and what you want them to do. So that's going to do it for this show. We've covered a lot of territory, a lot of action items to, to process. As always, I appreciate your tuning in. You're listening to Fire It Up. This is Steve. I'm here every week. We're going to talk about politics and the me mechanics of it each week. So until next time, please make sure, please, that you're staying safe, washing your hands, wearing gloves, wearing your mask, exercising social distancing, even as your state may or may not be opening up. So please stay safe. I look forward to seeing and speaking to you all again. And as always, I will talk to you again in seven days. Stay safe, everybody. message wherever you stand I'm calling every woman 
Calling every man We're the generation We can't afford to wait The future started yesterday And we're already late